excited to to jump into the Bible this morning, because as we're going to see, this is a really intriguing passage of Scripture, super unique. Uh, But before we get there, uh, if we haven't met, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors of our church, the guy who gets to do most of the preaching, and and that's surely the case this morning. Um, We're going to continue to work our way through this great story of redemption that Luke is out to tell, and it's going to take us a while, but, but it is quite the wild ride. I promise it will not be boring. Narratives never are. Um, in this case, we get to step into the pages of this, this great story ourselves and into the scenes, and we get to see the character development and all the stuff, and it's going to be incredible. And all of that, Luke tells us that we might have a sure knowledge of Jesus Christ and the hope that's ours in him. And so speaking of Jesus, uh, this story is all about him. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and, uh, and open up to Luke chapter 2. That's where we'll be this morning, particularly in verses 39 through 52. We're going to close out chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can track with me up on the screen. This morning's passage will be up there as we work our way through it, along with various quotes and other scripture references along the way. Let me, let me go ahead and pray for us, and we'll jump in, and we'll get to work this morning. Holy Spirit, we invite you to move in power as we sit with divine revelation, the very inspired word of the living God. Thank you for this morning's passage and its uniqueness. I pray that it wouldn't be lost on us this morning, but rather the wonder of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for us would be illuminated. Spirit of God, as you move in this place, in this time together that we have as we assemble as your people, would you give me a feeling sense of the very things that I preach, Lord, that it wouldn't be lost on me either, that we would all walk away transformed and changed, and that it would ultimately be for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So if you were around last week, or if you weren't, it's the same summary, last week's passage had to do with the the dedication of the newborn Jesus. You look back at the verses that precede verse 39, his parents presenting him to the Lord as an act of consecration. Next week's passage is gonna bring us face-to-face with the all-grown-up John the Baptist preparing the way for the all-grown-up Jesus Christ so that this morning's passage functions as something of a bridge from Jesus's infancy to the beginning of his public ministry. It's the only uh, biblical record we have of Jesus's boyhood. This is it. It's the only biblical record we have of Jesus's adolescence. All of that time between the the birth narrative, the Christmas story, and the beginning of Jesus's public ministry, this is what you get. So that I think we're meant to ask ourselves, why? why? Why would Luke include the story that we're about to read in his account of the person and ministry of Jesus Christ? What does this story itself tell us about Jesus that we need to know that Luke believes that to leave it out would be to our detriment? If you pick up in verse 39, Luke tells us, he says, and and when they had performed everything, that is Mary and Joseph, according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. All right, there you have it. (laughs) Those two verses, the first 12 years of Jesus's life. It would be so incredibly easy to, to gloss right over these words, and yet they offer us some of the most profound theology in all of the Bible. The wonder of the incarnation, the, the joining of the divine and the human in the one person of Jesus Christ. 
what theologians refer to as the doctrine of the hypostatic union, that Jesus is not two persons, Jesus is one person, and yet in the one person of Jesus Christ, both natures, human and divine, exist. You go read that chapter of the systematic theology book, it'll make your head spin, particularly when you then sit with Luke's gospel account and try to make sense of of that working with tracks on the ground in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Fully God and fully man, the God-man. As the apostle Paul says so eloquently in Philippians 2, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The the Bible emphatically declares the deity of Jesus Christ and Jesus himself emphatically declares his own deity. We'll see that soon enough. But the Bible doesn't solely declare the deity of Christ. The Bible declares that Jesus is eternal God who without ceasing to be God became flesh and dwelt among man. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, Merry Christmas. Not meaning that Jesus became less than God. The the incarnation, mathematically speaking, is not an act of subtraction. It's an act of addition that Jesus added a second nature, a human nature to his divine nature. As Gregory of Nazianzus, uh, the early church father once said, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. That is human. You have the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ in collision. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology, he says it this way. He says, it is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all of the universe. There you have it. Right? Luke means for us to see here the profound mystery of the physical, intellectual, and spiritual development of the Son of God. That Jesus had to go through the same developmental stages as you and me. And the child grew and became strong, verse 40. Increasing in stature, verse 52. That Jesus had to learn to crawl and then to walk that he had to hit all of the the developmental benchmarks that he might grow into the man who would someday bear our sins in his body on the tree. Not only that, again, verses 40 and 52, he was filled with and increased in wisdom. Jesus had to learn how to spell his own name. He had to learn to spell the things that he had made in the creation of the universe. He had to learn to exercise wisdom, having taken on the intellectual limitations of our humanity. As Philip Ryken says in his commentary on this passage, he says, with respect to his divine nature, yes, Jesus knew all things, but not with respect to his human nature. The human mind is not omniscient. It's not all-knowing. There are boundaries to its knowledge. Here we stand at the threshold, he says, of one of the great mysteries of the incarnation. God the Son took on the intellectual as well as the physical limitations of our humanity. If we believe in the incarnation, then we must believe this. Jesus Christ was a real human person, body, mind, and soul. 
The early church spent a lot of time on their Christology because a lot of people got this wrong and it led very quickly to heresy. Jesus became tired at times. He experienced hunger and thirst. He cried real tears at the death of his friend Lazarus. He knew the feeling sense of a sorrowful soul. And here's what that means for us. And this is not exhaustive, but I'll give you four, four implications as we look upon the humanity of Jesus Christ in this morning's passage. First, Jesus shows us that the problem is not that we're human. The problem is that we're fallen. And he shows us what humanity can actually be like as God intended. Something that we'll see over and over and over again throughout the course of this series. Second, because Jesus is truly human, his death is able to atone for the sins of humans whose nature he shares. Hebrews chapter two, verse 17 says, therefore, as one trespass, he's talking about Adam there, led to condom, or I'm sorry, I'm ahead of myself. Hebrews two seventeen. therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect Jesus did so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Or again, to quote that same early church father, Gregory, for that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. That we should praise God this morning for what we see in this passage, that Jesus assumed a human nature that he might bring healing and reconciliation to humans. Third, because Jesus is truly human, he can give us his perfect righteous record as our sinless human substitute. Here's where I tried to go just a minute ago, a little too quickly probably because I love this verse so much. Romans 5, 18 and 19, therefore, just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. That in Adam, we stand condemned. In Christ, by faith, we stand justified. That's the gospel, that Jesus didn't just come to die the sinner's death that we deserve to die. He came to live the sinless, obedient life that we could never live. He, he became obedient all the way to Golgotha, including the many formative years of his adolescence, which is what Luke means in, in declaring to us that Jesus grew in favor with God. It's, it's the double truth of the gospel. We've talked about this numerous times along the way. Eternal life coming at a price, namely perfection. Live out the great commandments of a perfect God perfectly and salvation is yours. We need a hero who will not only die in the place of sinners, but gift them his perfect righteous record to hold before a holy God. So that, and think about this, let this revolutionize the way you look at the remainder of this sermon series as we work our way through the remainder of the book of Luke. We're meant to rejoice every single time we see Jesus exercising obedience in Luke's gospel account as we see him completing what Adam failed to complete on our behalf. The perfect sinless life that we could never live, that he might gift that record to us by grace through faith. Fourth, and there are probably more on the list, but four is what I got for you this morning. Fourth, because Jesus is truly human, he can sympathize with us and meet us with grace and mercy in our time of need. That Jesus knows everything we experience in our humanness, tempted just like we are, yet without sin. 
that because Jesus is truly human, he can enter into our sorrows with us. And because Jesus is fully divine, he has the power to lead us through those sorrows and over to the other side of them. Truly the, the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. Situated in, in the briefest of phrases, bookending this morning's passage, verses 40 and 52. And right in the middle of those bookends, you get a story. The only story we have of Jesus's boyhood life. A story that, that finds its way into Luke's gospel account, I believe, because it's a moment in which Jesus comes face to face with the realization of his identity and destiny. If you look at verse 41, Luke tells us, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. According to the Mosaic law, the, the journey to Jerusalem for Passover was, it was required of Jewish men, though many women and children made the journey each and every year alongside of those men, so that the annual Passover feast brought in upwards of six times the normal population. We're talking about roughly 200,000 people in the city of Jerusalem and as many as 100,000 sheep for temple sacrifices. A lot of barnyard animals, right? You have this several days long rehearsing and celebrating the story of the Exodus, God's rescuing of his people from enslavement to Egypt. Many of you know the story incredibly well. Closing out the book of Genesis, the, the scriptures tell us that God's people were forced to enter Egypt as a result of a famine. And at first, the relationship between the Egyptians and, and the Israelites was pretty cordial. But over the course of time, that, that relationship shifted, it changed. And, and the Israelites found themselves enslaved and oppressed, something that went on for several hundred years in the land of Egypt until God intervened. We're told that the enslavement of Israel didn't fall on blind eyes or deaf ears that the Lord saw the affliction of his people, that he heard their, their cry. And he raised up Moses as his ambassador to command Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let his people go. And as the story goes, not only did Pharaoh refuse to do that, but he increased the heavy burdens of God's people. And so God, in order to demonstrate his power, brought a series of plagues upon Egypt. And the, the plagues, uh, if you're familiar with the story, they went from bad to worse, right? culminating in the 10th and final plague, the death of the firstborn son. That God said to Moses, I'm gonna bring about redemption and here's how I'm gonna do it. I want you to tell each household that represents my people to take a lamb and not just any lamb, but a lamb without blemish, a lamb without spot. And each one is to kill that lamb without blemish and smear its blood on their front door. And that lamb is gonna act as their substitute. Judgment's coming on the land, no one's exempt, it's either the blood of the lamb or the blood of one's firstborn. And as the story goes, the, the Israelites did as God commanded. And that night, God struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, those whose front door was not covered by the blood of an unblemished lamb. It's one of the, the great pivotal moments in the story of the Exodus, the, the night that God established Israel's freedom from enslavement to Egypt, over a million Israelites walking away from over 400 years of bondage. It's a moment in redemptive history that, that establishes one of the great motifs in scripture, God bringing about freedom from enslavement, freedom from bondage. One of the famous verses, Exodus chapter 20, verse two, 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. All right, that's the story. I wanted to tell that story because that's the story that Jesus found himself immersed in for the better part of a week, running around the city of Jerusalem, feasting with family and friends, singing and praying in the temple courts day and night, surrounded as the lamb of God, mind you, by the sacrifice of thousands of Paschal lambs. Luke goes on to say in verse 43, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Okay, we're not just talking about an incredibly crowded scene, a couple hundred thousand people in the city during this time of year, but we're talking about one in which it would have been perfectly normal for Jesus to be with friends or family from his village, as everyone from Nazareth would have likely caravaned together on the journey to Jerusalem and back. Hence the language, verse 44, of supposing him to be in the group. In this case, it was... It was customary for the women and the young children to lead the caravan with, with the men and the older boys following close behind so that Jesus, on the basis of his age at the time, could have really landed in, in either crowd. It was likely assumed by both parents to be with the other. Mary thinking Jesus was with Joseph. Joseph thinking Jesus was with Mary. After a day's journey, both realized Jesus is nowhere to be found so that you have the prequel here, home alone, lost in Jerusalem, and of course, they hop in a rental van with a polka band and make their way back to the city of God to go get this all fixed, right? Verse 46, Luke says, and after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. In Jesus' day, um, kind of the education scene, it was a little bit more of a dialogue. It involved questions and answers on the part of both the teacher and the student. It's how the, the Greek philosophers went about things. In this case, Jesus happens upon a, a lesson being taught in the temple courts, we're told, likely having to do with the story of Passover in light of the week of celebration that had just taken place. And we're told that Jesus astonishes those having gathered there not because he's exercising omniscience, but because the Father is revealing wondrous things to him. As Jesus will go on to make clear in response to his distressed mom and dad in verse 48, and when his parents saw him, they, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I, we've been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Right, you, you hear Mary's question and it would lead many to wonder whether Jesus had dishonored his father and mother, a, which would be a direct violation of one of the, the 10 commandments, mind you. That can't be the case, we know, because the scriptures declare elsewhere that Jesus was without sin. If he dishonored his father and mother in this moment, we have no hope for salvation. So, so then the question becomes, what are, we, what are we to make of what Jesus says here? I mean, this is the only story we have of his boyhood years. 
Again, it's a story that finds its way into Luke's gospel account because it's a moment in which Jesus comes face to face with the greater realization of his identity and his destiny. As Kent Hughes says in his commentary, he unintentionally caused his parents to worry because his 12-year-old mind was totally absorbed with the massive spiritual realization of his identity as the Messiah that had come to him that week. The combination of his authentic adolescence and the immensely absorbing revelation regarding his own person so occupied his mind that he did not imagine that staying in the temple would cause anyone alarm. The 12-year-old Jesus had been immersed in the wonder of the Passover celebration and all of the implications of his identity in light of that very celebration. The true Passover lamb, innocent, without blemish or spot, someday to be slain so that the angel of death might pass over you and me. Amazingly, this is This is where we get Jesus's first words in the gospel of Luke. This is the first time Jesus Christ speaks in this sermon series. And his words are incredibly profound, a booming declaration of his unique relationship to God. Nowhere in the Old Testament is there a parallel for what Jesus says here. When he uses the the words, my father, in terms of his reference to God, In fact, God is referred to as father only 14 times in the entire Old Testament, and every one of those is in reference to his fatherhood of Israel as a nation, not to any one individual on a personal level. Not even Abraham, not even the great Moses, not even David, a man after God's own heart. Here you have the first of more than 60 examples of Jesus referring to God as his father, a declaration that not only is he the son of Joseph and Mary, but he's the son of God. As the father will soon enough declare at Jesus's baptism, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So that not only is Jesus not acting in disobedience in this morning's passage, but he's acting in perfect submission to the father's will a precursor of of things to to come in this great story that that Luke is out to tell. As he goes on to say in verse 50, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them and he went down with them and, and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. It would take years for Mary and Joseph to piece it all together, the fullness of the implications of the promise of the the angel Gabriel. In fact, Mary would be reminded of Jesus's perfect submission to the Father's will years later as she beheld her dying son, his willingness to go to the cross itself, a submissive declaration to the Father, thy will be done. Establishing, as we know, a greater exodus by his blood, not from Egypt, but from the far greater shackles of sin. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That Jesus came to perform the, the greatest, most powerful work of liberation the, the world has ever known. 
the true Passover lamb, having shed his blood that you and I might go free. That as God saw the blood of the lamb on the door of the Israelite homes and passed over them, so God sees the blood of the lamb Jesus spilled out for us and passes over us. And more than our redemption, because you get a two for one in this morning's passage, he's also the hope of our adoption so that we can declare with him this very day, our father in heaven. That apart from Jesus, I say this all the time, we'd all be spiritual orphans diving in the dumpsters of depravity. But where we were once separated from God, we're now able to approach him as our father, loved with a love beyond our wildest dreams. Royal children of the king that we are on the basis of the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. Galatians 4, verses four through seven. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave. There's the Exodus language coupled with the adoption language. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This morning, we're simply meant to praise Jesus Christ for his perfect sonship that we might know a sonship of our own. Restored into right standing with our heavenly father, privileged to leverage our lives in humble submission for his glory to show the world by his grace what humanity can be like as God intended. As an outworking of our salvation, of our redemption. Jesus with us every step of the way. Again, entering into our sorrows with us in the fullness of his humanity, leading us powerfully through those sorrows in the fullness of his divinity, the most profound miracle, the most profound mystery in all of the universe to be marveled at for the span of eternity. I've said it before, I think I said it just weeks ago, that sometimes the, the application of a passage of scripture is to just allow your head to spin in wonder and to worship the living God in light of that head spinning reality. And so I just invite you to do that to, to lean into a doctrine that you can't possibly exhaustively make sense of and to stare at it with wonder and, and to worship with gratitude in light of all the implications of the wonder of this great doctrine, of the wonder of this great person, Jesus Christ.